Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to your weekly American Prestige, the hottest propaganda podcast on the left from our mouths to your minds. I'm Danny Bessner. I'm here with Derek Davison. As always, Derek, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing uh, okay. I'm a little worried about Boris Johnson, actually, friend of the pod. Uh, He's having a, a hard time. Uh, let people kn- uh, know how the sausage is made. Neither of us could sleep. We were so worried. So yeah, we were just texting each other uh, all night, uh, trying to time. comfort each other. Yeah, had to take a few sleeping uh, sleeping pills, a lot of melatonin. Um, so that's that's what we had to do. Um, but so Derek, you 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 know what a transition. Why don't we get started? What's going on yeah, with I a friend I'd of the pod? Right into it. Yeah. So <laughs> Bojo is uh, in some hot water. He's been weathering. Um, a number of scandals of his own making in many cases. Um, there was a one over, uh, I guess he and his, uh, wife or fiance and then wife, uh, really overspent to redecorate 10 Downing street, the prime minister's residence, uh, when they took up there, uh, it now it emerged later that he had taken cash from a big donor to finance this and, uh, which is, uh, you know, a little, little shady. Um, there've been a few other scandals that like little things, nothing that, that by itself would be enough to, to seriously threaten his premiership, but taken in the aggregate, it's, you know, they're starting to build up. The calls for his resignation relentless. This weak and contentious prime minister can no longer limp on. The message from the public is clear. Remove this unfit prime minister from office and do it now. The, the most recent one. Uh, is apparently there was a, a, a leak of some photographs. I don't know if there was a video attached to it, but uh, at least some photographs of a uh, really posh, nice-looking wine party that I guess uh, the folks at the, the Prime Minister's office decided to hold for themselves in 2020 while the rest of the UK was uh, under very stifling COVID lockdown. Uh, this was so, certainly, Derek- you know... Yes, I got a question yes. here. I got a question here. So okay. why? So usually, it, it, it things like this, these sorts of types of of, of what would the word be? Dramas, uh, events usually arise or are a function of other. I would say more deep or more serious conditions. So what do you think made this particular moment um, so um, resonant for the United Kingdom's population? Well, I mean, I certainly think COVID is is part of it. People are frustrated. Um, you know, if you're not a Tory supporter, then you're inclined to to um, you know be very critical of the way Johnson's government has handled this. Even some Tories are critical. Uh, you know, some of the the right wing, uh, really right wing conservatives are, are you know fed up with lockdowns. Uh, the some of the, I mean, a lot of the same controversies that we see here in the U.S that break down along mostly the same lines. You've got anti-vaxxers, you've got uh, people who want to stop masking, you've got people who are um, on the other side who don't think the government is doing enough. Um, I, I think COVID is, is probably the big explanation here for people's frustration. Um, but the other thing I would say is, I mean, I get the sense from kind of looking at these 
uh, stories that come out of dribs and drabs. Maybe Boris Johnson is just not that competent a <laughs> prime minister. Uh, and maybe he's had some ethical lapses in the past. And uh, uh, there are some, some issues there as well. So the UK, in a way similar to the United States, seems to be floundering in terms of its leadership class. Is, is that a correct observation? Um, there doesn't seem to be any particularly gifted Obama-esque politicians. Obviously, I, I don't agree with uh, basically anything Obama did, but he was you know, a gifted politician who was able to mobilize people around him. So um, is there a deficit of leadership in the United Kingdom that we see similarly in the United States, where there's you know very old leaders and there's some exciting leaders like um, AOC? or what have you, Ilhan Omar, uh, in particular, for talking about anti-imperialism. Um, but it seems like the UK is also suffering from a leadership deficit. I would say yes, especially on that sort of the, the surface level, as you're describing. Um, Johnson is not a particularly inspiring leader. Keir Starmer is sort of, uh, you know, hasn't inspired anybody. He's now, the Labour Party is now leading in the polls. Uh, but I don't think it's through any fault of their own. It's because of these scandals and the, the accumulation of them uh, and people sort of losing faith in, in Johnson. So, yes, I, I agree. I don't, I can't drill deeply into to British politics to find you the AOC of Britain or anything like that. But I think at the top level, certainly there is a lack of uh, kind of inspiring national leaders. So speaking of inspiring national leaders. Well, we, I, I, we should say, I mean, I should finish the, the, the reason we're talking about this right now is because Johnson uh, just came out this week with a sort of non-apology apology for the garden party in which he basically apologized for other people letting him down. <laughs> it was, it's, he's sort right. of uh, admitting <laughs> yeah. that like he was there, he went in, he kind of joined the fake the gang, friends, man, but can't trust but, fake friends. <laughs> but he thought somehow that it was a work party uh, or a work meeting, not a, not a party, I guess. He thought it was like a legitimate work meeting. I don't know why uh, all the wine bottles lying around didn't clue him in that maybe it wasn't. Uh, but this was his sort of attempt to kind of get out of this scandal and, and um, offer some kind of mea culpa, although not quite, uh, not quite going that far. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, the, the polling, as I said, is, is kind of flipped uh, uh, recently, and the UK doesn't isn't scheduled to hold another election for quite some time. But I think next year sometime they have to hold it. But there, there are some calls that are starting in the back benches of the Conservative Party for Johnson to resign uh, and give somebody else a chance to, to lead the party and serve as prime minister. And that those kinds of things can can snowball if uh, if they go unchecked. So if people continue to be really pissed off still that you think there's a real chance that Boris Johnson might have to resign? I mean, I think if the polling doesn't turn around somehow, and I don't know what would cause that to happen, there's no obvious thing that he could do at this point. But, um, you know, it could, you know, I, I think if the polling continues to be like this, if you continue to see labor kind of, you know, uh, pulling ahead. Uh, the calls for him to resign are only going to get louder as as they approach the election. Uh, that's really interesting. We'll we'll keep a uh, an eye on that. And so, even though Derek uh, stomped on my awesome transition, well, I, earlier, I had to, I had to finish <laughs> finish that because the the real punchline is that I think he he's in danger of having to resign. So, so speaking of leaders, <laughs> yeah, uh, let's let's uh, update uh, our listeners on what's going on with the U.S. Russia talks. Yeah, so this week was supposed to be the big week for diplomacy to try and uh, forestall 
and a Russian invasion of Ukraine, if you think that one is uh, imminent. The uh, deputy U.S. Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, and uh, one of Russia's deputy foreign ministers, Sergei Ryabkov, uh, met in Geneva uh, on Monday. Uh, to sort of hash out their grievances. The main points continue to be Russia wants some kind of guarantee that NATO will not expand any further east. Uh, they want uh, to limit NATO's or really uh, prevent any additional NATO troop deployments to the into the territories of uh, the alliance's eastern members. And on the other hand, the U.S. wants Russia to, to draw down the tens of thousands of troops that it's put near the Ukrainian border in sort of a, a, a somewhat menacing way, I suppose. Uh, these are non-starters for, for, on both sides because they, they infringe, obviously, on uh, the prerogatives of NATO to expand as it wants, and on the other hand, on Russia to do what it wants with its own soldiers and its own territory. Uh, so neither side seems inclined to to bend on on these points. Uh, they did talk about a few other things, like uh, maybe restoring the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which is something the Trump administration tore up. Um, that may they may those those things may have some legs, but it seems on the big issues uh, they didn't make any progress. Now, yesterday, Wednesday, as we're doing this uh, on Thursday. Uh, there was a meeting of the NATO-Russia Council, which is the body that's supposed to uh, kind of sort through issues like this when they arise. Uh, similarly, they don't seem to have made any progress on the headline issues there. Uh, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe is meeting at the end of the week with, uh, as we're sort of doing this episode or is doing this recording. Um, so far, at least, it doesn't seem like they're making any progress either, and I doubt that they will. Despite saying they see no reason for any optimism, Russia says the situation is not hopeless and there will be further talks with the U.S. and others throughout the week. Arguably, uh, then, um, this week of that was supposed to be the, the the big chance for diplomacy to work has actually uh, maybe pushed everybody further back into their own corners and made conflict more likely, which would not be good, obviously. So there's a couple of, I think there's a couple of questions that I want to drill down sure. on here. First, just in terms of practicality, um, does this suggest anything about a potential Russian invasion of Ukraine, or this is still in a holding pattern, we don't know, et cetera, et cetera? I don't know that it, it signals an invasion. I still am... am reluctant to say that the Russians want to uh, actually go through with an invasion. Um, they have uh, sort of painted themselves into a corner where, you know, they didn't get anything. They didn't get any concessions from NATO. Um, they're kind of stuck now, you know, having having made these threats. NATO's painted itself into its own corner, but that's, that's another subject. Uh, um, so, I mean, I think that the possibility of an invasion, if I had to, to kind of put it in relative terms, I would say it's probably greater uh, at the end of the week than it was at the beginning of the week. Um, do I think that it's going to happen anytime soon? No. But on a scale of months, it is possible you could see the Russians take some military action. Uh, again, I don't know if it's going to be a full invasion, but some kind of uh, investment in the Ukrainian civil war, maybe, you know, maybe uh, renewing that conflict trying to separate the the Donbass region the separatist Donbass region fully uh, from the rest of Ukraine and and you know something of that nature I don't I don't think you're going to see Russian tanks kind of mainlining it toward Kiev uh, but but it could be something short of that 
So if we did see Russian tanks mainlining toward Kiev, what do you think the United States' response would be? And just quick, I don't want to dwell too much on the counterfactual, but I'm interested sure, in what you no, think will happen. Well, the, I mean, the U.S. and, and the European Union and, and NATO have, have made it pretty clear that they will not get involved militarily. Uh, they really can't from a logistical standpoint. That That's just not uh, going to happen. Um, I think, uh, I mean, they've threatened... Uh, severe economic sanctions, like severe up to the point of, say, cutting Russian banks off from the SWIFT network, which would really fundamentally Well, that's shut impossible. Down, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. that shuts down the Russian Russia. economy, yeah. Um, and, but how could they do that in light of the energy relationship between Russia and Europe? This is what well, I think is... Well, that's, I mean, that that's another question, you know, Especially Germany winter. Is, the German government, some people, some German officials have threatened to, uh, to cut off the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and stop you know, purchasing Russian gas. Other German officials have hedged on that, so it's it's hard to say. Um, I think other other beyond the economic, um, the U.S. is going to continue sending uh, arms to Ukraine. There's some talk of uh, organizing, and this is, I mean, this is this isn't something the Biden administration would admit to if, if it is doing it, uh, of maybe organizing stay behind battalions like the the operation, the infamous Operation Gladio uh, type units from the Cold War uh, that would basically, you know, once the Russians invade, would would try to exact as heavy a cost on them as possible. They would activate. Um, <laughs> yeah, they would sort of they would activate, and and those things, you know, there's never any long term problems with organizing those kinds of things um, no no they it always so, works out excellent yeah always, yeah always works out great um so that's possible i think um but but there's not going to be a, a full-scale um rally to ukraine's defense in a, in a military sense so i want to ask this sort of larger theoretical question which is i think one of the the organizing principles of the broad what I would call the heterodox community of people who are critical of U.S. foreign policy, from leftists on the left to, you know, realists to libertarians on the right, is that diplomacy needs to be the foundation of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and, and to some sense, uh, I agree with that. Of course, you know, diplomacy is better than war. But what do you think th these sorts of failures suggest about the limits of diplomacy um, and the limits of the imperial, imperial action in the world? I, I mean, I would hesitate to to say that this is a failure of diplomacy, which would imply that there was some give and take. I, I think what happened on Monday and what happened again on Wednesday was everybody kind of walked into a room together and aired their grievances, but they didn't really talk about ways to address them short of, you know, knuckling under to each other's demands. Uh, I don't get the sense that there's any flexibility here on either side um, or any kind of creativity about figuring out uh, alternative solutions. I mean, one of the ironies of this, right, is that the big Russian uh, grievance or the, the concern is that it doesn't want Ukraine to become a NATO member. It doesn't want Georgia to become a NATO member. Neither of those countries is going to become is going to be accepted into NATO for the foreseeable future. I mean, or ever maybe, um, because of a, a variety of issues. But it's just a fact that NATO is not going to admit those countries. And yet, for NATO to say that, you know, kind of undermines the alliance in some ways. It it, it kind of subjects it uh, to Russian demands. So I, I uh, you know, there there could be a, a, a place to make a, an agreement like. You know, Ukraine's not going to be admitted for some period of time, and then we'll revisit it uh, later or something like that. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the sense I get is that 
Um, they're not even at that level of sort of talking, talking about ways to finesse this. They're just sort of saying, this is what, what I'm pissed off about and, you know, you have to deal with it or, or else. Great stuff from NATO as usual. Oh, um, so, <laughs> so why don't we go um, a little further east and uh, Derek, update us on what's going on in Kazakhstan. Yeah, there's not a whole lot to say here. Things have been calm since uh, Thursday or Friday. Um, the the Kazakh security forces kind of uh, you know seem to have gained control of Almaty and the rest of um, the, the the rest of the country to the extent that we know what's going on. Almaty really gets the uh, the most news coverage because it's the largest city. Um, but things seem to be calm. Uh, Russian peacekeepers, mostly Russian peacekeepers from the Collective Security Treaty Organization, uh, deployed toward the end of last week uh, to secure, uh, like, the Almaty Airport and a couple of other places. They're already packing up to leave, apparently, at least according to the Kazakh government, which is fascinating because uh, you may have seen uh, Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken on Sunday go on CNN and say uh, he quipped something to the effect of once you invite Russians into your house, it can be very hard to get them to leave, which manages to be both kind of subtly racist and an astonishing thing for a U.S. Secretary of State to say, uh, because look at what happens when you invite the United States in. Uh, things really, really go badly most of the time. Uh, but anyway, leaving that aside, uh, it looks like the, the CSTO forces are leaving. Uh, the Kazakh government has been arresting hundreds of people each day in connection with last week's protests. I don't know if they're holding them all at this point. I think it's like 12,000. It's probably more today. It was 12,000 as of Wednesday. Um, I don't know if they're still holding them all, but there are reports of people you know, being denied access to lawyers, of families not being allowed to visit, things, uh, uh, the kinds of things that you don't like to see uh, in the wake of, uh, of an event like last week. But, uh, other than that, uh, there's, there's really not, I think the CSTO withdrawal is probably the big story of the week there. And, and the one that, uh, discounts or disproves, uh, maybe some of the, the hair on fire rhetoric that came out of Washington when that deployment happened. So what does this suggest about popular protests and its ability to topple governments? Do you think there, I mean, obviously these are all very context specific, but is there, are there broader lessons of, that we could um, draw about popular protests in an age of incredible militarization of states. Um, because I've been thinking a, a lot about this because I'm writing on the history of liberalism and there's all these revolutions, 1789, 1848, 1917, um, the Velvet Revolutions of the late Cold War, um, uh, and moments where popular protests really did successfully topple governments. But it just seems like um, it recently, you, you know, even if you think about Tahrir Square, Square and what happened after Tahrir Square, you know, only Tunisia is a, is the country that has, um, you know, had had some sort of positive long-term outcome. Correct me if I'm wrong about that. That's my understanding. I'm not an expert. But does this suggest anything about um, popular protest? I mean, I, I think it suggests that if there's no mechanism in place to sort of translate the popular protest into uh, an organized movement, uh, that you're, you're not probably not going to get very far. And I would look to what happened in Kyrgyzstan kind of late 2020, early 2021, uh, there was a popular uprising, popular protests against uh, the Kyrgyz government that were seized upon by uh, Sadr Japarov, the, the man who is uh, now president uh, of Kyrgyzstan. Uh, oh, our listeners kinda, already know who he is. You don't I'm need to sure, identify yeah. him. Yeah. Um, you know, he sort of uh, 
seized the the moment basically and organized a a, a real movement to overthrow the government. And, I, and I, you know, there's a couple of differences here. Kyrgyzstan's a, a poorer country that that has less of a capacity to to deal with revolt and and uprising um, in terms of security. Um, you know, but but I think the lesson is, you know, when you have these sort of Protests. I mean, there's still no sense of who, if anybody, was sort of leading uh, the protests in in Kazakhstan. They seem to have emerged uh, pretty pretty organically from you know they they started in the West over the uh, the fuel price uh, complaints and then they uh, you know spread to the rest of the country. There's no and there's been no identification of a leader um, in there and and uh, you know uh, the Kazakh president Kasim Joe. Uh, uh, Tokayev uh, has suggested that there was some nefarious kind of foreign involvement. He's hinted at like Islamic State or Islamist uh, forces kind of fomenting violence, but hasn't produced any evidence of that. Um, my sense, and, and you could apply this, I guess, in a different way to Occupy uh, here in the United States is, you know, when you don't have somebody who's speaking for the the movement it's hard to sort of challenge the uh the government uh, on a on a actual uh systemic level and threaten its existence yeah and i think this is something that we on the american left really need to be thinking about in the coming years so why don't we end on what's going on in lebanon and specifically um hezbollah and its feud with the saudis uh yeah so i like to check in on Lebanon from time to time since uh, things are quite bad there and it's uh, uh, really one of the maybe one of the biggest non-war related uh, economic collapses we've ever seen or at least in in a recent history what's happening now I, I well uh, on Wednesday Hezbollah held a conference in South Beirut that was basically for anybody who is an enemy of the the Saudi government. Uh, so they had domestic opponents of the Saudi monarchy. They had uh, representatives from the Houthi rebels in, in Yemen all come together to sort of, you know, uh, talk about ways to get rid of the Saudis. Not that that's realistically going to happen, but it is indicative of what is a continually a deteriorating relationship between the Saudis and Lebanon, mostly because of Hezbollah. I mean, it's no secret that the Saudis don't like Hezbollah. Uh, Hezbollah gets uh, a lot of support from Iran. Uh, the Saudis have, over the years, criticized the extent to which uh, Hezbollah is involved in Lebanese politics. Uh, they've taken steps occasionally to boycott Lebanon or to punish Lebanon for uh, uh, for Hezbollah having such a prominent role. Uh, but they're really in a in a in a major spat, and they've been in one for a few months now. Uh, it started last year with uh, some comments that aired on Lebanese TV uh, by the then information minister of the uh, current Lebanese government, George Kordaki. Uh, now, these were comments that he had made before he became information minister, but they were aired on TV, uh, I guess, around the time that the cabinet was taking shape. Uh, where he criticized, uh, how dare he, uh, criticized the glorious war in Yemen. Uh, the Saudis got 
very angry at this. They banned Lebanese imports. They uh, withdrew their ambassador, kicked Lebanon's ambassador out of the country, demanding Kordahi's resignation. That lasted, that uh, crisis lasted for a few months. Kordahi was backed by Hezbollah and therefore couldn't just be fired because of the way that Lebanese politics work. He couldn't just be canned. The prime minister, Najib Makati, and President uh, Michel Aoun had to sort of lean on him and pressure him to resign, which he finally did in December. According to the information minister, he said, after much thought, I do not want to be the reason why uh, there has been a deterioration in relations between Lebanon and its traditional ally, Saudi Arabia, along with other Arab Gulf states. That hasn't really improved Saudi-Lebanese relations uh, very much. But now we're in the uh, we're at the point where earlier this month, uh, King Salman of Saudi Arabia was giving a speech to his advisory council, the Shura Council, where he launched into a, a diatribe about Iran's regional activities that focused a lot on uh, Hezbollah. He criticized Hezbollah's, uh, he called it terrorist hegemony uh, over the structures of the Lebanese state. Uh, the Lebanese leader, Hassan Nasrallah, uh, gave a televised speech earlier this week where he referred to Saudi Arabia uh, as a terrorist state. He referred to Salman as a terrorist. Uh, so that's that things are not going well in this relationship. Um, and, you know, the, the risk here is that le- with Lebanon's economy in such a uh, really constantly, you know, kind of imploding. It's in a, been in steady implosion for uh, a couple of years now, but the Saudis have tools that they can use to make things worse. They could boycott Lebanese imports again. They could, uh, you know, take some steps to, to really make things worse. The, the drawback of that for the Saudis is every time they do something like that, every time they've done something like that in the past, it's only made Hezbollah stronger, really, in terms of its effect, its uh, kind of influence in Lebanese politics, because um, without Saudi Arabia as the sort of counterpole uh, to Iran, and Lebanon is really uniquely f- among uh, Arab states, it's sort of pulled between these two poles. Uh, and without Saudi Arabia kind of acting as the counter to Iran, you know, Lebanon uh, kind of is pushed further into uh, to Iran's orbit. So this generally backfires on the Saudis every time they do it. Uh, but at the same time, it, it, it can inflict, they can inflict a great deal of pain on the, the Lebanese people. So Derek, for the first time in my life, and tell me if I'm wrong here, it does seem like the Saudis are on their back feet. Um, that it, it, it does seem like the general U.S. withdrawal from the region, with all, you know, clearly the U.S. is still in the Middle East in many ways. It does seem that there's, they just have less power than they used to. They just have less influence that they, than they used to. They're increasingly nervous and anxious about the future, uh, especially given the likelihood of um, the, 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 uh, decline in fossil fuel use in the in next 20 years. So what what's your like general take on Saudi Arabia in 2022? I would I would characterize it as a loss of swagger. Um, and you're right, it's because <laughs> of the US. I mean, it really is. It's like the Saudis are the kid who, you know, they know they've got the biggest kid on the playground backing them up. Uh, and right. so they feel like they can do anything. Um, right. and, and they're starting to question that. Uh, and as a result, uh, yeah, I think they're sort of flailing around a little bit. They're they're worried about, uh, you know, you, they've had some preliminary, still still fairly preliminary uh, encounters or interactions with Iran about sort of settling their 
larger dispute. Uh, they're picking fights with Hezbollah, which is way below their their weight class, so to speak, and suggests is indicative of a a country that's a little bit panicked about the future. Um, at the same time, yeah, the the other factor in this is is sort of looking ahead to what's happening with fossil fuels, and uh, you know, are people going to keep buying oil? Is the demand going to go down again? I think the the pandemic probably scared them a little bit because the the demand for oil and oil prices dropped so quickly that it really, uh, you know, threatened to do a number on the Saudi economy. Uh, they had to cut, you know, they and the rest of OPEC plus had to cut production substantially to try and deal with that. Um, you know, and they've started to look at other, uh, you know, diversifying their economy. And, and uh, that's brought them into conflict with um, the UAE, which has been, you know, longtime Saudi ally, really, uh, their closest uh, ally in the Persian Gulf, certainly. Uh, but they're now competing over uh, really economic things. The Saudis want to force uh, companies that do business in the Persian Gulf to put their headquarters in Saudi Arabia. Most of those companies have their headquarters in Dubai right now. So that puts the, the Saudis and the Emiratis uh, in direct competition with one another. But it's it, and it's it sort of, uh, you know, is another way that they, they're kind of off balance because this alliance with the Emiratis that they've had for so long is kind of uh, shaky. It's a little it's on a little bit of shaky ground at this point. So, yeah, I think for a number of reasons, they're they're in a, a state of transition. Mohammed bin Salman hasn't impressed me as uh, the savviest guy on the block or, or somebody who can uh, manage crises very well. Um, and so, yeah, I think they're I think they're flailing around a little bit. They're sort of trying out a lot of different things to see if anything uh, uh, can help stabilize their their situation. It'll be very interesting to see where they are in 10, 15 years. Um, all right, Derek, I think uh, unless you've got anything else, that's all we've got for today. We've got an interview, uh, the second part of our interview with uh, Jean Bajalon on the history of the Kurds. We really focus on the 19th century, the long 19th century, um, as it were. And we've got, uh, we're releasing also our next uh, episode in our History of Vietnam series. And we've got a lot of cool stuff coming up for everyone, a long uh, series on the history of Afghanistan. Uh, we plan to do a sister. Uh, a, a long series on the history of the non-aligned movement. So lots of cool stuff coming on. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye, Derek. Bye-bye. Hello, prestige heads. And we are back again this week, two consecutive weeks in a row with me and Jean Bajalon. Uh, Jean is an assistant professor at Missouri State, right, Jean? Missouri State University, yes. In Springfield. The Missouri State University. Gene is uh, a professor there, and we're here to talk uh, about the history of the Kurdish people. We, uh, in the first episode, started really early in history. At points, we got back to the 1100s, but today we're going to focus on the long 19th century and the question of Kurdish nationalism. So, uh, Gene, as the expert, um, why don't you just tell us, if we want to understand Kurdish nationalism, where do we start in, in, a, more, you know, in a more modern period? Sure. If we're looking for a periodization of Kurdish nationalism, when we might begin to talk about not simply Kurdish identity in a general sense, but very specifically nationalism in a modern sense, I would say that ideology emerges in a multiplicity of different contexts, by and large in the period between the mid-19th uh, century and the end of the 19th century. At first, in very sort of sporadic and limited senses, but by the end of the century, we begin to see, for example, 
the publication of the first Kurdish newspaper, uh, or rather, not the first newspaper in the Kurdish language necessarily, but the first Kurdish-orientated newspaper, Kurdistan, which was published in uh, 1898. And, you know, in the early 20th century, we see the emergence of the first Kurdish civil society organizations and political organizations. So the Kurdish nationalism in a modern sense, I would say, comes into being between about 1850 and 1914. So listeners to the podcast might be familiar with European nationalisms. And, you know, if they took a social theory class in college, they might have read Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities or maybe Ernst Gellner or um, Eric Hobsbawm's work on nationalism. So uh, as someone who studies nationalism, um, how would you relate the experience of the Kurds and Kurdish nationalism to what might be the more familiar story to listeners who have learned, you know, maybe about print capitalism or about nationalism? So even maybe you could very briefly just recount the general narrative of European nationalism and then place um, what, we, what, you, what you study about the Kurds in dialogue uh, with that. Not, of course, to privilege the Western perspective, just by the fact that people listening might be more familiar with that history of nationalism. Sure. So, you know, over the last 50, 70 years, there's been a considerable theoretical debate over the origins of nationalism. You cited some very important authors there. Imagine Community Benedict Anderson is extremely important. Gellner, of course, is important. And what these theoreticians of nationalism, and when I say theoreticians of nationalism, people who were not actually necessarily nationalists, but people who were trying to understand nationalism, what these theoreticians were put forward was the idea that nations are modern phenomena and brought about by a variety of different processes, pick your poison, Different theoreticians pick different paradigms to understand nationalism, print capitalism and uh, Benedict Anderson and the revolution in the conception of time, industrial society and growth-orientated societies in Gellner. Uh, John Bruley, who is someone who influenced me greatly, who I studied with, looks at the state and the, modern, the formation of the modern national state. Again, you know, you have Hobsbawm who is very much influenced by Miroslav Hush, who is uh, someone who did a lot of uh, comparative work on nationalism. Again, positing this kind of notion that nationalism is modern, created, invented for a variety of different reasons. And as I said, different authors emphasize different processes connected to modernity in understanding the birth of nationalism. And obviously this was counterposed to the nationalist view of nations, which our nations are this, you know, time immemorial institution of humanity and like a primordial division of the human community. And even if particular nations might go dormant or might be obliterated, the nation is kind of an ever-present actor in the dance macabre of the historical process. So these modernists critique that. Now, in the 80s, uh, there were a number of uh, writers who kind of critiqued this radical modernism and said, look, you know, nations are definitely modern, but they aren't completely created out of nothing. You had writers like Anthony D. Smith, who wrote a very in influential book called The Ethnic Origins of Nations, which kind of linked the birth of nationalism to 
pre-modern ethnic groups. This concept he popularized the ethnic, uh, the ethnic community, and you know he his work has been kind of influential as well. Although it too is problematic because obviously, you know, it, it, there can be it can be read in a kind of teleological uh, narrative as well. But by and large, nationalism. Uh, is seen as this modern phenomena. And most of these theories, theoreticians of nationalism, are working within the European context. So uh, a lot of their theories are developed in reference to specific paradigms of nationalism in Europe. For instance, in Europe, the ethno-linguistic model of nationalism was very powerful, right? And you know, uh, people, you know, as people became more interested in other parts of the world, obviously these paradigms, these modernist paradigms were adapted and, uh, you know, used to try and understand nationalisms in other parts of the world. And I think, you know, what a lot of people would say is that while the kind of modernist argument in a general sense is correct, that this idea that there, there exists, the world is divided into nations, nations are the fundamental sort of building block of human society, and more importantly, interstate relations, right? You know, th this is a modern phenomena. There is some debate about how much pre-existing uh, ethnic or cultural uh, entities influence the process of nation formation. Radical modernists will argue, someone like Umit Özkerimli will argue, look, they just make this stuff out of nothing. There's like no relevance to pre-existing uh, ethnic communities. And then you'll have people who will take a more ethnic-orientated approach, which reads it back. I tend to take a moderate approach. I think in understanding the formation of modern na nationalism, contingencies related to modernization are primarily in understanding this process. But I think this process of nation formation and modernization is takes place within a, a, a pre-existing historical context. To put it another way, nations are in a certain sense arbitrary you know, which nations win, which nations lose, it's, it's to a certain degree arbitrary, but it's not random, right? Yeah, you mean you mean win in terms of like the, the hege hegemony of a society. Exactly. You don't mean like, a war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why the, French nationalism is the way it is. Just wanted to make Why don't we have a Burgundian nation today? You know, Bur right. Burgundy was a, you know, I know you guys do the uh, hinge points. Could have been a bit different, right? Right. We, we could have had a few different events and then we could be talking about- Or Aragonian nationalism or, or what Aragonian have you. Or Aragonian nationalism yeah. or any, any number- I think Norman Davis has a has a book. Uh, Norman Davis has a book. I read the book, uh, which is all about <laughs> the states that like nearly were, but sort of disappeared, and that perhaps, given a few different breaks in history, could have become uh, nations. So nations are random to a certain degree, contingent, but uh, uh, you know, but they are arbitrary. But they're not random. They don't, you know, the Chinese nation would never have been could never have been constructed in Europe because the pre existing cultural right. and historical landscape uh, uh, gives us. So I think, you know, the postmodernist turn in, in, in uh, social studies has perhaps gone a little bit too far in the modernist direction. And I would agree with a scholar like Miroslav Hoch, who's like, look, yeah, we look at nations as in this modernization process, but, you know, history affects it, not just in the sense that nationalists use history, but there are things like historical monuments, patterns of settlements, linguistic maps, Things that nationalists have to find some kind of solution to, and they can't just change as yeah, the they raw wish. material of nationalism is out in the world, and the way it's, that it is shaped is different according to different societies. Exactly. Essentially, so 
Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so, and, and I, and I agree with Hodge in his, you know, latest book, I think it was, or at least his latest book in English, where a lot of this theorizing on nationalism is actually just, uh, academics trying to, uh, split the baby over like very little differences when, in fact, you know, there's a very common sense, if you ask me, approach whereby we look at nationalism as a modern phenomena, but we recognize that pre, like that the modern, the modern world doesn't just happen overnight in one go people have to negotiate a passage from the pre-modern world to the modern world in which they have all these historical concepts, terminologies, which may get radically reinvented, but, you know, don't come out of nowhere. So uh, last time we talked extensively of what the term Kurd meant in the pre-modern era, something very different from what modern Kurdish nationalists would mean when they would say Kurd. But, you know, this, this term is inherited and then reinvented in this context, in this new world which is created, a world which is defined by the nation-state, where the nation-state becomes the building block of uh, an international order. And sort of more generally, we see uh, uh, political legitimacy moving away from deriving from God to deriving from the people, and thus the question of who are the people becomes critical to modern states, and we see the formation of the nation state. So, you know, in the old Marxist terminology, as nation nationalism is like the is like a bourgeois phenomena, I would kind of agree with that. The modern capitalist world is framed by nations and nationalism, which is different from the feudal world, which had you know religion, imperial systems at, at, at its core. So, nationalism is a is definitely a modern ideology, and it is a system. It's not just something that develops within each community, but it, it, it is a way of viewing the world. And we see this transformation from a world of dukes and princes, princes at the Congress of Vienna, for example, to a world where even the imperialists after the First World War have to concede to nationalism by calling their colonies mandates and saying they're helping, helping the people come to uh, uh, come to, to like, national recognition, national recognition. Sense. Yeah. So obviously, uh, you know, it's a very complicated theoretical debate, but I think, you know, I would say nationalism is modern. It's a phenomena that has shaped not only Europe and the world. And I would say that nationalism and for example, the cultural uh, context in which nationalism has occurred in places like Asia is different to certain degrees uh, and, and the upshot of the, this is that you have like different varieties of nationalism in a sense. So let's, let's pause on that for a second. So Gene, just in brief, how is Kurdish nationalism situated here? So Kurdish nationalism, I think, has certain characteristics, not too dissimilar from Balkan nationalism in, in the way that it's uh, formed. I think, for example, language in the Kurdish case functions a little bit differently from, for example, language in, let's say, uh, European nationalism. So I see language as being more symbolic, whereas uh, in, for example, some European nationalisms, you know, a pr the printing press and a common language form this basis of this imagined community in the vernacular language, whereas I, I would argue that the early forms of Kurdish nationalism was actually being imagined Yes, in Kurdish, but primarily in Ottoman Turkish as well, with Kurdish language as be being seen more as a symbolic sort of uh, characteristic of Kurdish nationalism. Uh, I would also say, you know, it has uh, the political and cultural 
versions of Kurdish nationalism develop in parallel to the, one another. So this teleological notion that you go from like a cultural nationalist awakening to a political separatist nationalism awakening in a kind of linear track, I think that's a kind of wrong way of looking at it. Uh, I would argue different elements of Kurdish society experienced modernization in different ways. And that led them to mobilize their pre-existing Kurdish identity in a world in which the nation state was uh, and nationalism was becoming more and more important as an ideological framework in different ways. So the Kurdish intelligentsia, the Kurdish traditional feudal uh, and tribal elites, they be did began to have a greater inverted commas national consciousness, but how that was manifest in political and cultural terms very much depended on contingent factors relating to the way that they experienced the process of modernization. I hope that's a clear way of putting it, but uh, but really have want to highlight a kind of multiplicity in the way Kurdish identity was reinvented in the 19th century within the context of nationalism's global conquest. So why don't we um, move from the theoretical to uh, getting getting back to the sort of narrative of this period from the Kurdish perspective. Uh, the late 18th century and the first half of the 19th century, we have to talk about obviously the wider context of what's happening in the Ottoman Empire. This is a, a, a time where the Ottomans are um, simultaneously, I think, uh, trying to reform the empire from um, you know, what it had been in previous centuries into a more bureaucratic, um, centralized, really, in some ways, uh, form of government in response to the challenge of uh, keeping up with the Europeans, and, and which manifested, um, you know, kind of paradoxically in the fact that they kept losing, they were starting to really lose wars against the Europeans, against Russia in particular. Uh, and the loss of those wars meant uh, less ability in some ways for the empire to control its internal, um, its internal structure. Um, you have in the 1830s, basically a, a, a civil war in a sense between uh, the Ottomans and the governor, their governors of Egypt, the Muhammad Ali and his, uh, his sons uh, that creates kind of an internal Frontier. We talked last time about the Kurds being sort of a uh, on the frontiers of empire for a lot of their their history. Uh, this is an internal frontier in a sense, but it is very much a frontier uh, that once again the Kurds are kind of existing on. Um, uh, take us through this period as the Ottomans are trying to centralize, and there's sort of a pushback uh, as the Ottomans try to impose, you know, for example, their own governors on uh, mm -hmm. Kurdish-controlled regions and tribal elites kind of uh, push back against that. You see uh, revolts breaking out and and sort of you know little polities forming uh, from time to time. They're not based in. Uh, I think a nationalist sentiment in the way that we're, we've been talking about, but they're rooted more in this kind of uh, elite back and forth, and yet it's still part of the 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 story here. Yeah, I think I think that's a very important point to note. So let me give you a kind of vista of the Ottoman Empire in the late 18th century, at the beginning. We love vistas here. We we were a vista forward <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm always happy to provide a vista. The Ottoman Empire, the, the military decline of the Ottoman Empire was not really apparent to the Ottomans until the mid 
18th century. It's important to remember there were several important revivals of Ottoman military power in the early 18th century. They gave Peter the Great a damn good thrashing in uh, 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 what is Moldova today. They were able to teach the Venetians a lesson or two. And they were also able to resist um, Nadir Shah's advances in the mid uh, 18th century, of, you know, the revival of Persian power, they were able to combat and defend against that. So the Ottoman system was very resilient. And in fact, the decentralization of the Ottoman Empire that we had discussed in many ways helped to protect the empire because instead of, you know, defeating the, uh, the, the Sultan's army and then the whole empire collapsing, the governors were greatly empowered which meant that every governor had his own army and his own military. And if you were invading the Ottoman Empire, you had to go through all these different governors with their own military bases, their own, uh, own sort of uh, military and political formations. So in the late 18th century, we have a much more decentralized empire. If you imagine the reign of Suleiman the Magnificent as being a feudal pyramid where the sultan was at the top and you know, had this very, this relatively strong control over his feudal subordinates, Something that Machiavelli notes in his writings that, you know, the feudal system of the Ottoman Empire was based on slavery rather than vassalage. So, you know, the, the, the Ottoman Sultan had much greater control over his vassals. That system breaks, breaks down. And we see the Ottoman Sultan coming to sort of inhabit a space at the center of a spider's web of power, where he is an important central node of power. Uh, he provides legitimacy to provincial governors and provincial elites, but those provincial elites, many of whom first go to those regions that they inhabit as servants of the Ottoman Empire, are able to seize control of the mechanisms and apparatus of local government and basically turn regions into their own hereditary fiefs. So you have in Baghdad the rise of the Mamluks dynasty in Baghdad, you have the Jalinis in Mosul, in various provinces across the empire, you have these Ayan, these notables, who... Uh, operate largely independently, but of course their relationship with the Ottomans is important. They are part of an Ottoman civilization. They are legitimized by the central government. And at the same time, you know, the central government has to recognize them because they have power. Now, this new, more decentralized system is superimposed on the pre-existing settlement that we discussed last time, in which the Ottomans, from the point of conquest, recognized the legitimacy of the indigenous Kurdish aristocracy and tribal elite and created a condominial system in which certain regions were given great autonomy if the Kurdish ruler was highly prestigious, some were given a little bit lower, and some regions were put under central control. So you, those regions that were under central control are now under the control of sort of lo, uh, new elites that have risen up and taken control of the apparatus of, of, of local government. So we have this highly decentralized system at the beginning of the 19th century, this patchwork, Holy Roman Empire style of, uh, of, of imperium. And the empire is under assault, as Derek pointed out. Russia inflicts two punishing defeats on the Ottomans. Uh, they seize control of the Crimea, which is both a symbolic and a strategic disaster for the Ottomans. Symbolically, it's the loss of Muslim land. Losing Christian land, eh, it's the luck of the game. Losing Muslim land, that's a strike at the legitimacy of the Ottoman state, an Islamic state. And secondly, it opens up the Black Sea to the projection of Russian power, which becomes uh, a major problem across the 19th century. I believe, and I may be wrong about this, I believe 
you know, the first shots of the Crimean War are naval actions. The first Ottoman shots against the Russians during the First World War are naval actions. So the Black Sea becomes go, goes from being an Ottoman lake to being contested. So the Ottomans are under pressure, and we see an increase in the desire of, to reform the state. Now, Ottoman statesmen had wanted to reform the Ottoman state for years, but the paradigm increased across uh, over the course of the 18th century increasingly shifts from a paradigm that talks about restoring the classical institutions of the Ottoman state to how they were at the time of Suleiman the Magnificent, to a paradigm that increasingly looks to Europe to provide administrative and political models uh, of government. You know, we see, uh, we see in the 18th century, uh, French military officers, Baron de Tot, come and dr uh, uh, drill Ottoman military units. Artillery schools uh, established by Abdul Hamid I. So we see the beginnings of uh, the importation of European uh, uh, hum uh, technological know-how and capital, human capital. This is like reflected in Candide. If you've read Voltaire's Candide, you know a large part of that book is a, is is to do with like people buggering off to the Ottoman Empire and uh, you know uh, turning Turk, as it was known at the time. So uh, in the late 18th century, we see Selim the third uh, begin bureaucratic reform, reforming the financial apparatus of the state, and establishing a European style military, the Nizami Jadid, the new order. Nizam means order. It's a very important word to conceptualize and understand in understanding the mental framework of Ottoman reform in the 19th century. So the, it's this rationalization and ordering of things. So the Nizami Jadid was this military uh, military uh, that was built along European lines. And in fact, Derek mentioned uh, Mehmet Ali of Egypt, who became the governor. Mehmet Ali's, uh, who, who is known to posterity for his rapid attempts to reform and modernize the uh, Egypt as a state within a state, as a kind of uh, uh, independent state within the Ottoman Empire, uh, and establish a kind of military fiscal state. Um, he was inspired by, uh, you know, he witnessed these reforms firsthand. So we see the beginnings of reform, but there is a lot of pushback to this. So the reform doesn't get off the ground. Uh, for example, Selim is overthrown. Uh, there's a there's a sort of revival of traditional elements that obviously are not happy with these, uh, uh, these moves that, uh, of reform. And it isn't really until the reign of Mahmoud II in the early 19th century that we see uh, an important drive towards military reform, which takes a lot of time. The the you know they they abolish the genessary, they massacre the genessaries, get rid of this old imperial uh, uh, army, establish this new military uh, that's based on sort of pr a Prussian model of military organization, and along with this, of course, they move to a move away from this patchwork. Holy Roman Empire version of administration towards a more standardized, centralized system of administration where the government, the central government and the emergent modern bureaucracy that uh, sort of is developed out of the old scribal system, uh, this new modern bureaucracy is established. At first, this modern bureaucracy begins in the foreign office for obvious reasons, but then 
we see sort of increasing, increasingly these paradigms of bureaucratic organization being implied, applied to both the administration and the uh, uh, organization of the state. And of course, this leads to conflict with A, those IANs, those local elite, uh, those elites who had seized the apparatus of local government. And then, of course, the Kurdish uh, feudal elites whose entrance into the Ottoman system had been based on, and this was actually how Kurdish intellectuals framed it in the late 19th and early 20th century, as a kind of act of union, where the Kurds of their own volition joined the Ottoman Empire in return for this recognition of their vassalage and the, the sort of recognition of their inalienable rights to their own uh, territories. And of course, there, were, there are uh, uh, imperial decrees which, you know, guarantee this throughout the centuries. So basically, we get to a point where the Ottomans are like, okay, now we're going to do this centralized French-style centralized government, and that is not compatible with the deal the Kurdish aristocracy thought that they had. And Gene, I would I would add to that something that you mentioned um, in the last last week in the last episode. Um, it's it, you know it's sort of um, interesting to look at these reform movements and how much uh, they centered on the Janissaries, uh, the Nizami Jadid. I mean, Salim the Third didn't have a lot of time to sort of flesh out the Nizami Jadid, but the the main the centerpiece of it, as far as he you know uh, got, was the creation of an alternative to the Janissaries, an alternative military force, and it was the Janissaries' resistance to that 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 helped you know do away with him. Uh, then you get to Mahmoud II in 1826, the auspicious incident where he. That liquidates the Janissary Corps, basically. Uh, and if you if you postulate the Janissaries, as you did last time, as this sort of check on the power of the Sultan and a, a defender of uh, kind of the working class, so to speak, of the empire or the uh, the kind of, uh, you know, sub-elite level, uh, they're gone after 1826. So that's that's uh, part of this centralization is is getting rid of them as a, as a unit. If you want to think of a parallel with Europe, Mahmoud II brings enlightenment despotism to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, he liquidates the, uh, uh, yes, as you, as, uh, as you mentioned, the Janissary Corps, which had these organic links with the artisanal classes across, uh, across the empire and really establishes a kind of tyrannical uh, regime. There are still many traditional models of political power being exercised during this period, but increasingly it's moving towards a kind of enlightenment despotism, which means you have power, uh, the sultan exercising power through a modern bureaucracy and the transformation of the empire from sort of this hodgepodge condominium model towards this, uh, what is increasingly looking like an approximation in administrative terms of a modern European nation state. And this of course becomes formalized with the implementation of the prov prov uh, province laws uh, and things like that over the course of the 19th century. But we're seeing the shift uh, towards basically the Ottoman Empire in administrative terms increasingly looks like a nation state where you have a central government, you have a bureaucracy, you have a standardized system of administration, a series of laws. I mean, this is what Nizam and then in the subsequent reform era, the Tanzimat is referring to this ordering of things, making things rational, sensible, and clear. 
So, Gene, this is really interesting to me because in some sense you're describing, particularly in the fact that the Ottoman state um, begins to model itself on, on European nation states and adopt European reforms, is that it's a transition from the Ottoman Empire and what will become national Turkey into sort of uh, from center to periphery. There's a, a peripheralization happening here. So um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit of that in a, in a larger context because this is also the moment when the Mughal Empire begins to go into so-called decline, the, the exact same moment. And you're someone who studies like um, the, the Islamic world. So I was wondering if there's any work on this because I think that's a lot of people in the last 30 years have focused on, you know, from officially like Kenneth Pomeranz to more mm-hmm. unofficially like Jared Diamond, like why did the West rise as opposed to these other central powers? Um, and I think they've often done so in a very reductionist and oftentimes um, not necessarily professional historians, but the popular manifestation of this in a, in a reductionist way. And so I was wondering if you could just speak to that question briefly, given that this is your very specific area um, before we move to the relationship between the Kurdish aristocracy and the, you know, increasingly modern uh, Ottoman state? Yeah, I think I think a lot of literature, and I, and I would say there's a lot of counter-literatures now, you know, people are reassessing a lot of the our old stereotypes about the Orient and its relationship with the West. I think, I think and I, I don't think I'm wrong in this, but I think most historians worth their salt unless there's some kind of reactionary holdout um would i uh, would posit the idea that our notion of early modernity needs to be a global notion of early modernity you know like the old uh, implicit view is that you have this dynamic era, uh, center of the world um europe and then it like tentacles come out and like modernize the rest of the world rather than looking at this process in which Europe is certainly a cent- is the center, but being a global process in which all parts of the globe are in some way connected to one another. And in this story, of course, the Ottoman Empire is integrated into the emerging global capitalist system relatively early. The Ottomans have a number of like geographical and historical disadvantages when combating an ascendant Western Europe. Number one, they're like right next to Western Europe. If you're Japan, it's like a long way to go to Japan and cause trouble for the Japanese. For the Ottomans, it's the Mediterranean, right? So that they have that. Also, for a variety of different historical reasons, their economy was already partially integrated into the global capitalist system. And in the 19th century, that that, that process accelerates and to a certain degree is you know, made worse by the intervention of European power. So, for example, uh, within the context of the conf- uh, civil war between Muhammad Ali of Egypt and the central government of the Ottoman Empire, the British are be- able to impose a uh, free trade agreement on the Ottoman Empire, which right down to 1940 limits the Ottoman uh, Empire's economic sovereignty. And so over the course of the 19th century, we see the tentacles of global capitalism increasingly drawing the Ottoman Empire in and having this kind of lopsided form of economic modernization where the Ottoman economy increasingly becomes geared towards uh, providing primary resources to the advanced industrialized economies of the West and also becomes this market for Western industrial uh, products, which of course has a detrimental effect to the artisanal classes. Uh, it's The Ottomans are unable to kickstart their own industrial revolution. They can't raise tariffs. You know, the notion that free trade is good for 
uh, modernize it. And I, this may be a little bit of a side story. I once attended an economic development seminar in Iraqi Kurdistan, where the guy from the freaking uh, American um, uh, State Department came and told us all that Iraq should not raise tariffs on its agricultural sector because agriculture, you know, that will be, it's like, my bro, like you guys have our tariffs on your, what the hell are you talking about? So the Ottomans had this limited sovereignty over their economy. And, and of course, as they took loans, and there was a paradox here, as they tried to modernize, it required more money. Some could be raised through taxation, but obviously raising tax on people has its own downsides and, and problems. The other way was to get loans. And then suddenly those loans lead to new excuses for European intervention. And then coupled with this, we have this tradition of capitulations where the Ottomans would give special extraterritorial rights to Europeans, which they granted at a time when, uh, from a position of strength, but over the course of the 19th century became a kind of mechanism through which European economic uh, and political penetration into Ottoman society could take place. So the Ottoman Empire is is economically speaking becoming increasingly peripheral in this kind of world systems theory sense uh, to, to, to the uh, global economy. Rashid Kasaba, for example, has a very uh, important uh, book about this. But in general, I would say, you know, we need to look at this process of modernization and the birth of capitalism as a global process and not something that happens in Europe and spreads out. Would the British Industrial Revolution have taken place had the British not gone to India and observed the cotton industry and then liquidated the cotton industry. You know, there's, uh, ha would the Industrial Revolution have taken place had the New World not have been conquered and integrated into this uh, global, uh, global system? So all parts of the globe play a critical role. And the Islamic world is, of course, a critical part of this process in terms of being one of the early inverted commas victims. Uh, of European economic uh, and political expansions, but also being a key constituent element in the formation of what we think of as a European identity, uh, as being a key element in what in promoting uh, the emergence of the fiscal military state in Europe to fight the uh, fight the Ottomans, being a pioneer of many aspects of modernity, from musket wielding infantry to light cavalry which came, became popular in the 18th century, to something like the coffee house, which is exported to Europe from the Middle East and then re-imported in its French format in the 19th century. So, you know, we have this long dialectic uh, uh, taking place. Uh, another aspect to go a little bit out of the Ottoman uh, sphere, the, the collapse of the Safavid dynasty and the emergence of Nadir Shah, who, was a, who basically was a kind of Napoleon of Iran, who... Uh, uh, revived reigning power, crippled the Mughal Empire by smashing the Mughal military and looting the country's wealth. Literally, he goes to Delhi and forcibly expropriates the entire wealth of the Mughal Empire, crippling yeah, it. It was at a just time. an unbelievable amount of loot that they carried off. And my favorite story about that the is Peacock Throne. <laughs> well, the, the best story is, um, you know, people may not know this, but both Nadir Shah and the Mughals were of Turkic origin. They were speakers, you know, Turks played critical role in dynastic formation, even in majority non-Turkish uh, states. Mughals and the uh, Nadir Shah were of Turkic origin. And they apparently, when Nadir Shah arrived in Delhi, uh, he met with the uh, 
you know, he'd beaten the Mughal, uh, the Mughal ruler's army, smashed them. Uh, and then he comes and the Mughal's like, ruler's like acting all polite in the kind of Islamic way. He's like, oh, thank you for coming. Welcome. And uh, they have this whole ceremony where the Mughal emperor uh, welcomes Nadia Shah and he says, please take all my treasury. And then they do this typical Iranian thing called taruf, where like when someone offers you something, you refuse the first time because it's like rude to accept. And he's like, no, no, I said, it's like, you could, no, I couldn't, I couldn't take all your trust. So they just go through this whole rigmarole. And the fun <laughs> thing is, if you insist, I will take it all. But, you know, I'm, uh, and, and, and then and the so, Mughal rule is like, and I'll throw in a bit of territory as well. How about that? And so they have this whole like uh, rigmarole. Ritualistic exchange. Ritualistic really interesting. Ex- exchange. The other thing that Nadia Shah was famous for was he got sick of the Europeans. So um, he got the European representatives, brought them to court and had them raped in front of his court. Not that. Uh, so he was uh, he was well known for these kind of. Uh, what would you call it? Politics of spectacle uh, in, in his... Right, and so I think what's what's really useful to emphasize here is that what you're saying is that whereas a lot of the stories that you might hear in popular culture are about the rise of Europe and the decline of the rest, um, and, and particularly I think in the wake of the Middle Eastern American, the American wars in the Middle East, this is often taken like an Islamophobic um, tinge. This is actually like a much more complex history that's globally interconnected. Yeah, it's, it, it is globally interconnected, and the I think the you know the i think a lot of the things that made you you know gave europe an advantage in the 19th century they were probably not super apparent perhaps at, at the very earliest maybe in, in the early 18th century but there were still significant revivals of power and parallel kinds of development you know the emergence of stronger centralized states nadia shah is a good example of that many of the kind of bureaucratic um, uh, innovations he developed have echoes in European-style bureaucratic innovations. The process of linguistic vernacularization, you have, uh, you know, you have this, uh, uh, you have, you know, someone like Sheldon Pollock, who has done research on Sanskrit and I think Latin as well. You know, he says, like, we talk about vernacularization in Europe, you know, the shift away from Latin. Same, similar processes are taking place in other parts of the world. Michael Liesenberg has done research within the context of the Ottoman Empire, the move away from high languages towards Bosnian uh, being used as a vernacular language, Albanian and Arabic script being used, Kurdish being used. And then in, uh, uh, and Pollock's work looking at the shift away from Hindu, uh, Hindi, uh, sorry, uh, Sanskrit to local dialects. So a lot of these things that we are like, oh, they happen in Europe and this is Europe. There are echoes in other parts of the world, perhaps not in exactly the same way, but definitely there is a global early modernity which has its own specific characteristics. And this older view in which we have Europe and the rest, and that the the rest of the world is like in this kind of indolent medieval state and and unchanging and does not have really have history, um, you know, is just completely bogus and false. So, Gene, to get... Get us back to the the Kurdish story and and the developments that are going on within the Ottoman Empire. I, I'm uh, I'm curious about the role uh, that the Kurds play in the mid century push for uh, constitutional reform led by the young Ottomans um, who uh, you know emerge in the 1860s as uh, uh, people who are dissatisfied with the Tanzimat, they don't think it's gone far enough uh, in terms of sort of adopting 
uh, European principles. They want to push further to to turn the empire into sort of a constitutional monarchy, in a sense, uh, to put some guardrails on the power of the sultan. They create this idea or, I guess, develop further the idea of a uh, an Ottoman citizenship as this different from, you know, sort of everybody's the subject of the sultan. Instead, you, you know, you're an Ottoman. You're uh, in the way that somebody might think of themselves as a uh, a German or an Italian or something like that. Uh, what was the the response to the, these movements in this period uh, in the Kurdish community? Were there, were there Kurds who were involved in uh, this process or was there more kind of resistance in, as uh, you know, in terms of this being kind of more centralizing type uh, of a of a reform, what was uh, what was the interchange in a play there? Well, this is a very very big uh, question, a very very big question. So I will probably begin by perhaps modifying our understanding of what the young Ottomans were all about. I mean, in a general sense, there were factions that were westernizers, but ultimately the young Ottomans, which are this reformist movement that emerges during the Tanzimat era. And for your listeners, the Tanzimat era is a period that covers from about 1839 to, depending on who you talk to, 1871, which is when the last sort of uh, bureaucrat of the Tanzimat dies, or 1876, which is the rise of Sultan Abdul Hamid. This period is a kind of continuation of the reform period of Mahmoud II. Mahmoud does a lot of the legwork in centralizing uh, political power, establishing the rudiments of a modern bureaucracy and uh, establishing a standardized administrative system. And what we see during the Tanzimat is a continuation and deepening of that process. Uh, this time, however, uh, uh, during the Tanzimat era, the locus of policy power and political power shifts away from the imperial palace. We have relatively pa passive sultans and towards the leading lights of the bureaucracy that had come into being during the reign of Mahmoud II. This bureaucracy's primary objective uh, is to save the Ottoman Empire. It will it adopts certain aspects of European political statecraft. Many of these early statesmen had been uh, in, uh, involved in the translation office and also later in the foreign ministry. So they were familiar with Europe, but they aren't, uh, so, you know, it used to be, uh, used to be sort of under thought that, you know, this was a liberal movement, but it wasn't. It was a, a bureaucratic centralizing movement which sought to centralize the state, uh, in the name of the Sultan, but through the bureaucracy. And the young Ottomans were a cadre of intellectuals. Uh, that developed in the 1860s and 1870s uh, that critiqued this from a multiplicity of perspectives. Sheriff Mardin's very influential work looks at, for example, the Islamic vocabulary that was mobilized uh, in this context, uh, the way in which, for example, many of these reformers were conservatives in, in orientation. They, their arguments for, for example, constitutionalism were made with reference to Islam, that look in early Islam, the, uh, the successors of the prophet were actually selected. We have this whole tradition. Uh, this absolutism is, is, is not what we're uh, wanting. So you definitely have conservative, you have a kind of conservative inverted commas, uh, argument for constitutional government, which I would say 
has echoes in the past because the conservative anti-absolutists of the early modern period also framed themselves within this context of Islamic uh, pol uh, political thought. So we have uh, we have the young Ottomans, including, yes, westernizing factions, but also conservative factions and a variety of different things. A second thing I would say is, um, uh, what's his name? Brutus uh, Abumana has a very important article, which also talks about the way in which the Tanzimat was not simply European influence, but also drew on pre-existing notions of imperial reform, for example, Many of the, the, the Tanzimat proclamation of uh, 1837, you know, promised people a regular system of taxation. One of the big complaints had been this irregular system uh, of taxation. So we have during the Tanzimat period, greater bureaucratization. And as you mentioned, the stirrings of a notion of Ottoman citizenship and perhaps more importantly, the a notion of legal equality, the abolition of the old system of uh, you know communal uh, inequality that characterized the pre-modern uh, Ottoman Empire, in which you had Muslims on top and non-Muslims below, towards the beginnings of a notion that there is a sort of common legal framework for all Ottomans, non-Muslim and Muslim. This was the basis of uh, the sort of uh, legitimacy of the Ottoman state was, was, you know, providing justice on an equal basis to all these groups. So we see legal emancipation of non-Muslims over the course of this period as well. So a shift away from the old segmented hierarchical Ottoman order towards a new order in which the Ottoman population is increasingly envisaged as a citizenry, or at least a kind of unified subjects. And as you say, you know, we have this ideology of Ottomanism, that begins to take root. So this, this is a kind of like the big picture central uh, story that's taking place. And of course, traditional historiography of the Kurds in the 19th century, uh, you know, especially from Turkish nationalists, sees Kurdish resistance to this process as being reactionary, right? It's like Kurds don't want to get with this modern program, you know, not good for them. So we end up uh, but the, the reality is, the story is a little bit more complicated. To go back to the story of centralization, we see in the first half of the 19th century, we have this period of resistance. Uh, it is often called rebellions. We often talk about Kurdish rebellions in the early 19th century, but these aren't really rebellions because they're, they're not rebelling against the system. They're actually resisting to preserve the existing uh, order of feudal vassalage, right? So the Kurdish, uh, this first phase of Kurdish resistance in the 19th century against centralization is led by the old feudal aristocracy. We see Mir Muhammad of Rawandus uh, leads a rebellion. Uh, we have uh, the, the Babans seek to, uh, you know, resist centralization. On the Iranian side of the border, the Erdogans um, seek to resist centralization, although the, the process of centralization in Iran is more lethargic. And then, of course, the most famous rebellion of the uh, um, uh, early 19th century is led by Bedrakhan Bey, who is the Kurdish aristocrat, the prince of Jazeera Botan. Uh, he leads a kind of confederation of Kurdish princes, which include the rulers of Hakkari, uh, to resist Ottoman centralization. Interestingly, one of the triggers for his rebellion is the fact that the Ottomans 
basically carve up his territory, his hereditary territory, into two different administrative units. Attack, you know, use you know, bureaucratically uh, separating his territory, which is kind of a casus belli for him. So, so this process of centralization is resisted by Kurdish elites, who don't just resist in the traditional methodology, but also start to adopt certain modern things. So the Babans, for example, they de develop with the help of Russian uh, defectors from the Russian army who had fled to the uh, Middle East. Uh, they they create their own little Nizami Jadid, their own mini Nizami Jadid of 100 people. Bedrakhan Bey moves away from the old traditional uh, confederal model to, to establishing a more centralized bureaucracy within the territories under his control. And of course, they are aided by the fact that the Ottomans can't deploy their full military might against Kurdistan because they're dealing with the Egyptians. And it's only after the Egyptians are dealt with that we see during the sort of late 1840s, the complete liquidation, liquid, uh, liquidation of the old uh, order that had been uh, founded in the early 16th century and the creation of a new political order in which you have Kurdistan, at least on paper, under the control of the central government. Now, the question we have to ask is, how is that experienced by people on the ground? Well, the Ottoman, uh, the, the Ottoman government doesn't have the power to provide resources uh, uh, to discipline the region, to control the region. So they get control of the urban centers. Urban elites become to be integrated into the new bureaucracy. There are new jobs. You can work at the government office. You can, I mean, they don't have a DMV, but there's like DMV type jobs for urban notables to do. So some of those people do well. The old aristocrats who had resisted, they get a kind of sweetheart deal. The Ottomans are like, look, we're going to take you away from your home regions, but you and your kids are going to be integrated into this new uh, educated Ottoman bureaucracy who will study in these modernized schools or learn French, and then they'll be appointed within the Ottoman bureaucracy. So uh, the, the old feudal elites, uh, in particular the Bedekhans and the Babans, become part of a cosmopolitan Muslim Ottoman PMC class, this new uh, class of people. I mean, there's an intelligentsia in, in, in Islam, there's the ulema, right? But we have, uh, because of the needs of this new bureaucracy, we have this new uh, education system emerging in which we have modern science, Western languages being taught. So we see the formation of a new Muslim elite. Uh, and the word that they use actually sometimes is munavar, uh, which comes from the word tanvin, uh, uh, which means to enlighten. So enlightened people. So there are new intelligentsia that is familiar with Western languages and science and technology and bureaucratic methods. And, you know, elements of Kurdish society join that. Some are from this old feudal elite. Some are from these urban petty bourgeois backgrounds. They go study in the schools and rise up uh, the system. So those groups are kind of integrated into the system. Many of them come to play roles, not so much in the young Ottoman movement, but in the young uh, Turk movement that emerges in the 1880s and 1890s. In fact, two of the founders of this Itad Vetraki, Jemet, the Society of uh, Union and Progress, the, the what in the West we know as the Young Turks were Kurds, Abdullah Cevdet and Isak Skuti, both were Kurds, but who saw themselves as being both Kurds and also part of a new cosmopolitan elite. This new governing class, professional managerial class, this was the core constituency of Ottomanism, if you ask me. Now, 
you go to the rural majority, the tribal leaders and things like their experience of modernization is very different. So what does, the, what does modernization mean to most tribal people? More taxes, conscription, gendarme turning up. So there, uh, and also the Christians who they're used to being like top dog over ruling are getting uppity, you know, they're getting all these rights and they're like claiming that they have equal legal rights and things like that. So the, to go back to what I said at the beginning, the, the, the Kurdish nationalism was shaped by different elements of Kurdish society's experience of modernization. The experience of this new intelligentsia and, and the urban petty bourgeoisie was very different, for example, from the experience of tribal leaders, tribal groups, uh, and, uh, and for example, religious groups. Some of the early nationalist Kurdish poetry, uh, someone like Haji Kadri Koyi, Haji Kadri Koyi was a guy raised in the traditional Islamic education system, like super traditional guy, right? But the guy can read, right? He reads newspapers, he learns about the world, and he witnesses firsthand the destruction of the old order in Kurdistan and the, the, the new order, which is characterized by more taxes, more like increasingly rebellious Christians, conscription, and also inter-tribal inter Kurdish violence. The removal of the old princely Kurdish elites meant that you re removed the people who used to resolve disputes between the tribes, the, the people who had the prestige in Kurdish society to do that. And there's no one the Ottomans have to replace that. And interestingly enough, into this power vacuum, we see the rise of sheikhs, and the sheikhs are uh, religious elites in Kurdish societies related to the Sufi uh, religious orders. It is a spiritual practice of Islam. Uh, uh, and so Sufi sheikhs, the leaders of religious orders, traditionally in Kurdish society, when the elites, when the emirs, when the aristocrats were top dogs, they'd often acted as intermediaries between the, the Ottoman state and the, Kur, uh, and the princely elites. In this new area, these sheikhs become increasingly uh, powerful, they get control of land, they get more influence, because the Ottoman state can't replace the old aristocratic elite and provide order to the region. So we have this indigenous order coming from these sheikhly elites. So there's these two parallel stories of Kurdish society in, 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 in the 19th century. An increasingly disorderly Kurdistan that is shaped not only by social conflict between tribes, inter-sectarian conflict, increasing hostility between Christians and Muslims, partly shaped by the rise of Armenian nationalism, periodic famines, Russian invasions. It's like bad times. It's like bad, bad times. <laughs> it's all everybody. bad all over. <laughs> so so someone like uh, Haji Kaji Koyi is like, he grows up and he's like, he's he sees the princes. He's like, back in the day of the princes, you know, you were a poet, you would get like paid. It was like, good, you know, we respect it. Now, you know, from this town, this Tanzimat's been a bloody disaster for us, right? And, you know, there are some Kurdish poets who, who frame this kind of longing for the princely past in a kind of, let's say, uh, a kind of reactionary sense, in the sense that it's, you know, oh, I wish we could go back to the days where we had the princes. Koyi reinvents the princes, not as this time where princes were, but as this golden era of nationhood. And he begins to use terms like nation and nationalism in a modern sense. And he comes not out of a Western educated urban intelligentsia, but he comes out of a traditional wing of Kurdish society. 
when we look at the urban wings of Kurdish society, they were literally brought into being by the Ottoman reform process. They have a sense of their Kurdish identity, especially people like the Babans and the Bedekhans, these aristocratic families. They get benefits for being from these aristocratic families. Like the Sultan is privileging them, uh, especially in the final quarter of the 19th century with Sultan Abdul Hamid. They're getting all the top jobs. Abdul Razak Bedekhan, who would become a leading Kurdish nationalist, he was like the master of ceremonies at the palace. One of his uncles was the military commander at the Selamiya barracks, which is like a critical military barracks in, in, uh, uh, in Istanbul. So you have very different elements of Kurdish uh, uh, society experiencing it in a different way. And to sort of return to your question about this kind of reform movements, the young Ottomans and then the young Turks, we see the, uh, the urban elites playing, not only playing a role in the young uh, Turk movement, but playing a critical central role in it, a foundational role. Many key figures, someone like Sherif Pasha, who was a, uh, who was a member of the Baban clan, who was a Ottoman ambassador to Sweden, who was e educated in French military college, was a secret supporter of the young Ottomans. I mentioned two of the founders of the, sorry, the Young Turks and two of the founders of the Young Turk movement were Kurds. Kurds played a central role. The first Kurdish newspaper, Kurdistan, was created not by an independent Kurdish cultural or civil society or political movement, but as part of the Young Turk movement, as a publication of the Young Turks, advocating not for Kurdish independence, but advocating for uh, the, the overthrow or at least the return of the constitutional order and uh, asking, you know, and one, on one hand sort of promoting a kind of uh, cultural nationalism, but seeing the revival of Kurdish nationality and the salvation of the Kurds, not within an independent state, but, but within a cosmopolitan Ottoman state with a cosmopolitan Ottoman Islamic orientated slanted uh, uh, nas uh, uh, nationalism. And there, and this represents their class position in society. They were all bureaucrats, right? They all had hope of advancement in the Ottoman system. Perhaps, like it, we talk about Idpol today, perhaps they were like, oh, I'm going to leverage my Kurdish identity to say, hey, give me a job doing this because, you know, I'm going to be the appropriate person to be the governor of a Kurdish province because I'm Kurdish and you should, you should do that, right? But they weren't separatists, right? They 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 they, they saw that there was they saw Kurds as being a, an element. Unsar uh, is the term they use. They use this term etadi uh, nasar, the unity of elements. They saw it as this cosmopolitan, almost American-style patriotism, but with a kind of heavy Islamic flavor to it. Then we have a parallel tradition developing more sporadically. In the, uh, in the provinces where we see someone like Sheikh Ubaidullah, who you mentioned, who rebels against the Ottoman state and starts to use the vocabulary of Kurdish nationalism. He is a member of a traditional Sheikhli elite. He isn't modern uh, educated, but he rebels using that vocabulary of uh, nationalism in response to the fact that he said that, that people are A, upset with the not only Ottoman, but also Iranian rule. But also because it looks like the Ottoman state after the Doksanushihar, the, the Russo-Turkish war, looks like the Ottoman state is done. And he's like, look, uh, if the Armenians are going to get a state, we need to get a state. So 
we have like this kind of uh, provincial track, I would say, and then we have this kind of uh, urban track. Does that make so sense? I think, yeah, that's that's fantastic, and I think that's a good place to stop. Maybe we'll uh, pick back up with Ubaidullah's uh, revolt and sort of uh, the late nineteenth, um, early twentieth century kind of parallel rise of Turkish nationalism, which I think mm-hmm. is uh, important and kind of. Uh, the interchange between Kurdish nationalism. I'm more familiar with Arab nationalism, but I mm. think it, it's probably a, a, a similar interchange with Turkish nationalism and how that uh, impacts things. That should get us into uh, uh, to World War One and then the rise of the Turkish Republic, and uh, you know that'll that'll be all sorts of new topics to discuss. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, I, I keep uh, I keep uh, delaying you guys. We we keep planning to get to a particular <laughs> era. But no, think- these are good. I mean, what we need to do a series on the Ottoman Empire, I think, because uh, it's so important. But uh, this is these are good, I think, glimpses at some of the things that are going on in the wider empire, not just you know, not just to uh, the Kurds, but you can look at the Kurds as you know examples of of the things that were going on elsewhere. Yeah, I think you know the Kurds are kind of paradigmatic of certain changes taking place in other parts of the empire. But I think you know the Kurds, you know uh, the Kurds. What makes it an interesting case study is that the Kurds eventually didn't get a state and other groups did get a state. Right. And, and I think the, the, that reality means that often people assume that Kurdish nationalism was a late development or something like that. But in fact, all these movements are developing in parallel with one another and, and both kind of separatist and accommodationist tracks of this uh, developing in in parallel with one another. And there is an important interplay that nationalism and what a nation is, is always a kaleidoscopic project. And what I mean by that is that you can view yourself as being a Kurd and also part of an Ottoman national project in a very meaningful sense, like there is an Ottoman nation. That's the, that's the area of my political focus. Uh, or you can view your Kurdish identity as, as dictating that you have to be separate from, from Turks. But this is always a, there's always a kind of push and pull. And when you have the formation of the nation state, the kind of separatists always kind of present themselves as being the inevitability of history, right? When in fact, very often, the separatist track was not the popular track. And often right. there is a vacillation between, you know, separatism and unionism. Look at Scotland. Scots were at the vanguard of creating British nationalism, and they're probably going to be at the vanguard of the destruction of British nationalism. So, you know, Kurds uh, uh, were like Ottomanism, and this will be my last point. Ottomanism as a potential national project uh, has some historical weight to it. There was a long existing Ottoman identity. There was an existing kind of Ottoman political culture that could be reinvented in the 19th century. Uh, often we look at Ottomanism as separate from, for example, pan-Islamism and pan-Turkism as one of three potential policy routes that the uh, the Ottoman state could have taken. There's this uh, famous speech, the, the three-pass politics, which looks at these things as separate. Pan-Islamism is religious, Turkism is ethnic, and, you know, Ottomanism is like French revolutionary style you know, civic, inverted commas, nationalism. Ottomanism, though, is always be, had all these three elements in it. Ottoman, the Ottoman population has always been included important non-Muslim elements, but uh, Islam has always been key to Ottoman identity. 
Turkishness as an ethnic identity was not necessarily critical to Ottoman identity, but Turkish, when, when, uh, when early Ottomanists talked about, you know, civilization and language, what language were they talking about? They were talking about Turkish speaking language from Istanbul. So Turkism has always had a role in Ottomanism, but Ottomanism was a flexible enough concept in the 19th century that it could be appropriated by non-Kurdish, uh, non-Turkish groups in their own way. Arabs and Kurds could conceive of themselves even if the state's Ottomanist project had all these Islamist and Turkic sort of uh, poison pills in them, they could be appropriate, not even, not just by Kurds, Arabs, and other Muslims because of the long Islamic, but even by right. Armenians or Greeks right. who could conceive of themselves as an Ottoman nation. And so this project was always a contested project. And non-Muslims, and I can't remember, I think uh, Hamid Bosarslan has a good article about the Ottomanism of non-Turks, which includes Arabs, Kurds, and other groups who appropriated this ideology for themselves. And one critique of somebody who wrote a critique of some of my academic work, he said, Jean sees uh, the, the Kurdish movement as being Ottomanist uh, and not Kurdish nationalist. And my point was not to say that it was one or the other. It was to say that in the late 19th century, this Kurdish intelligentsia developed uh, Ottoman Kurdish nationalism in which it was conjoined, in which Kurdishness and Ottomanism were seen as part and parcel of the same thing and that these two ideologies were conjoined. And the destruction of the Ottoman Empire obviously disorientated to a great degree many of the urban elites who had bought into this project. So I think that'll be where we land next time with the destruction of the empire at the end of World War One, and what happens to the the Kurds, the sort of uh, you know dream of a Kurdish state emerging from that that then gets quashed. Uh, so uh, well, until then, uh, of course, uh, Gene, uh, thank you again for coming on the show, and uh, I'm looking forward to, to the next time we get to talk about this stuff. Thank you so much for hosting me, Derek, and. Uh, uh, Daniel, it's been a pleasure. Have a wonderful day and evening and take care of yourselves.